Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Maya Makatumpug, a Filipino-Canadian stunt woman whose work can be seen in movies like Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the Ryan Reynolds movie Deadpool 2, and TV shows like Supergirl and Supernatural. We'll find out about the family legacy that pointed the way to this unusual job. That's a little bit later on. We'll also get to know Slava Pastic, co-author of Bad Trips, a book recounting how he went from an editor for Vice Media to being sentenced to nine years in prison for recruiting friends into a scheme to smuggle cocaine from the U.S. into Australia. First, let's get to know Billboard's top new country artist of 2021 and CMT's 2022 Breakout Artist of the Year, Lainey Wilson. Her highly anticipated album, Bell Bottom Country, is out now wherever you legally buy and download music, and she recently announced a 27-city headlining tour that will visit Vancouver and Edmonton. Bell Bottom Country draws its title directly from the name that people use to describe the Louisiana native's unique style and aesthetic. It's country, but with flair mixing in elements of 70s rock, funk, and soul. We talk about her new record, what influence Miley Cyrus had on her career, and I'll tell you, it's not what you might think, and why she only wears bell-bottomed jeans. Here's Lainey Wilson. Congratulations on the new album. Thank you very much. It's out. No turning back now. I know. It must be an exciting thing. You've probably been working on this for some time now. The songs are very personal. How are you feeling today? I am feeling great. And I'll tell you, I'm just, I'm so excited that it's finally out. Just like you said, we have been working on this thing for a long time. You know, my first record, those songs were written in like 2017, 18, and I recorded them in 19. So I've had... I feel like I've had just as much time to write for this record as I did the last one. So it's been a labor of love. Did the pandemic get in the way at all for you? You know what? Um, for my songwriting, it actually did not at all. It gave me an opportunity to really be prepared for this record. I wrote mm -hmm. 300 plus songs during the pandemic. <laughs> And um, I mean, not all of them were good, but yeah. they all served the purpose. <laughs> yeah. Now, how does that work? So is it important for you when you say you, you wrote 300 songs? That's one every two days or something like that. Uh, it, mm -hmm. Does it feel like you just have to get it down just to get it out of your head and get it on paper and so you can move along to the next thing? Absolutely. I do feel like, you know, even the bad songs serve a purpose. And I think it's just to get me to that next one. Um, yeah. There's definitely times when I'm sitting down writing a song and, and I have the thought of, you know, of course I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, but I, you know, there's times where I have feelings of like, this song is never going to see the light of day, <laughs> but that's all right. You know, you just gotta, you just gotta write those and um, just to get you to the next thing. And that's what it was. We were just, we were writing anything and everything just to make sure that I had, what I felt like I needed for Bell Bottom Country. When did you start writing songs? Do you remember the first song you ever wrote? 
Oh yeah. I was, yeah. I was nine years old. <laughs> um, I wrote a song called lucky me. It sounded a little bit like a Britney Spears song. Um, but even at 10 years old, 11 years old, I mean, I was writing songs about tequila and cigarettes and, <laughs> and we didn't even have tequila and cigarettes in the house. It was just, I was listening to the other country songs and, um, I knew that's what they had talked about. So I was writing it too. <laughs> Probably from a fairly naive point of view though, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. My parents were like, what in the world? <laughs> I said, I was wise beyond my years. <laughs> so you mentioned Britney Spears, but you also mentioned that, you know, country music was something that you were listening to and certainly being influenced by. Um, what was it about country music that, that grabbed your ear? Where I'm from, which is Northeast Louisiana. Um, if you've ever heard of Monroe, Louisiana, I'm from a town about 30 miles south of there called Baskin and its population 200 and some change and um where I'm from I mean country music is truly life I didn't even realize as a little girl that country music was a genre we just we lived out those words and we lived out those songs so country music was pretty much the soundtrack to my childhood and um to my, to my parents lives too so um it was just what we listened to going down the road on the tractor with daddy in the kitchen with mama it was just a part of my life. And so there was no escaping it for me. And when I ended up writing my first song at nine years old, I got bit by the bug. And then my daddy showed me a few chords on the guitar at 11 years old. And um, I took a few lessons. And after that, I mean, that was pretty much all she wrote. It was one of those things that I felt like kind of chose me, you know, and I, I yeah. feel like I had no other option but to see it through. You're listening to Lainey Wilson on The Richard Krause Show. Find her new album, Bell Bottom Country, wherever fine music is sold. Did you ever have other jobs along the way other than music? You know what? I've always been able to play music. My job through high school was impersonating Hannah Montana. <laughs> I did three or four birthday parties a weekend. I did fairs and festivals and uh, birthday parties, St. Jude, you name it, I did it. So, and even at 16 and 17 years old, I was, I was playing with a band called the Cadillac Kings in uh, the Arklamas area, which is like Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, really wasn't even old enough to be getting into the, into the bars and the clubs, but um, we figured it out. So I've always been able to make ends meet by playing music. And um, it's just been such a, a huge blessing. What do you think you learned from, you know, playing in these bars when you were underage, doing the Hannah Montana shows? You take mm -hmm. something away from every experience that you have. What do you think you learned Absolutely. from those? Oh, my gosh. I could sit here all day and tell you everything I learned. For me, and especially with the Hannah Montana gig, um, and I was opening up for myself. So I'd be like, <laughs> hey, can Lainey Wilson open up the show? And they're like, who's Lainey Wilson? I'm like, the person you hired to be Hannah Montana. Um, but, yeah, you know, one day I would be playing a little three-year-old's birthday party. And the next day, or maybe even in the same day, I'd be playing a nursing home. So I really had to figure out how to adjust, how to adjust to my uh, audience. Mm -hmm. And I think that has really come in handy because even nowadays, you know, I mean, I might be playing an arena one night or I might be playing a, you know, a beer drinking bar, or I could be playing a theater the next day. And it's, it's just figuring out how to adjust, not changing who you are, um, but figuring out how to like come across to certain people. And um, I think it helped me. And it also taught me that this thing ain't going to be easy. You know, I mean, I was, 
I was playing these shows when all of my friends were headed down to Baton Rouge to go to LSU ball games on the weekends. And I was just putting in that time because I, I knew that I wanted to do this in the long run. And I knew that these were the steps I needed to take in order to be ready for that. And to do it in the long run, you really have to be in Nashville. And tell yeah. me about what it was like when you first got to Nashville. There's music absolutely everywhere, uh, mm -hmm. but the best players in the world are there, which could be maybe intimidating uh, for mm -hmm. a new person in the city. Tell me what it was like for you. You know, so I've always known that I wanted to be in Nashville. Actually, a couple of weeks after I wrote my first song, my mom and daddy took me on a family vacation to Gatlinburg. And um, on the way home to Louisiana, I pretty much begged them just to drive through Nashville. And I remember exactly where I was on the interstate in the back seat. I was staring at the Batman building and I told my mom and daddy at nine years old, I said, this is home. I just knew it. I knew that I wanted to write country music. I knew I wanted to tell stories. Didn't know how in the world I was going to get there, but I knew I was one day. So 19 years old, um, I was going to college in Monroe and I decided, okay, if I'm really going to do this thing, I need to be there. So um, I ended up buying a Flagstaff bumper pull camper trailer <laughs> and <laughs> hauling it to Nashville. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what it was going to look like or feel like, but I'll say I've never had a plan B. It's always been plan A. And I knew that I was moving to a town, just like you said, was with these people who are, I mean, who have been there for years working mm -hmm. and perfecting their craft and, I just knew that I was going to have to do the same exact thing and that I needed to start somewhere. So um, there was a guy from my hometown. His name was Jerry Cupid. And went back in the late 70s, he actually had a dream to move to Nashville and be a songwriter producer. Well, um, he didn't have enough money to move to Nashville and get started. So my grandfather on my daddy's side actually gave him a few hundred dollars to help him move to get started. So as a favor in return, he let me park my camper in his studio parking lot in Nashville for free for the first three years I was there. He was the only person I knew in town at that time. But I will say, of course, it was intimidating. But I wanted to get in these writing rooms with these incredible songwriters and artists and musicians because I wanted to learn and I wanted to grow. And um, I always say, you know, I want to be the worst writer in the room. And that's the truth. I want to feel like I've left there. Um, finding something out about life or myself that I didn't before. Country fans in particular, they want authenticity mm -hmm. and you hear it in the grooves of this record. Well, I'll take that. Yeah, it's very <laughs> important to me to, uh, you know, stay true to me and my story and my sound. My producer, Mr. Jay Joyce, he does such a great job at kind of stepping outside of the box and taking risk, but at the same time, keeping it me, you know, and I think we have both figured out what Bell Bottom Country truly is. And with the first record, we were just dipping our toes in. And mm -hmm. I'm still really, really proud of that record. But um, I feel like the more we even get to know each other, um, you know, it was just, like I said, it was a labor of love. And I think the cool part about it is we're really just getting started. And we're really just, you know, just putting it out there of, of what we, we feel like Bell Bottom Country 
is, what it looks like, what it sounds like, all of it. That was Lainey Wilson on The Richard Krause Show. Find her album, Bell Bottom Country, wherever you buy fine music. This summer, I hosted a panel uh, of true crime authors. And uh, one had written a book about the Don Jail, which is kind of an infamous jail uh, here in Toronto. Another one wrote a book called The Beetle Bandit, uh, which was a story about uh, a bank robber that wore a beetle wig and, and robbed a, a number of banks. And the other was Slava Pastuk, who is the co-author of a book called Bad Trips. And that is a book that recounts how he went from an editor for Vice Media to being sentenced to nine years in prison for recruiting friends into a scheme to smuggle cocaine into the U.S. Uh, or from the U.S. into Australia. And it's a fascinating story. It's a great book. You can find it now wherever you buy fine books. And what I thought was really interesting is as I was reading uh, um, the Slava's introduction, I was saying Slava Pastuk is, and he leaned forward and said, a criminal into the microphone before I got a chance to say co-author of a book and all that kind of thing. I was I was really sort of taken aback at that point. It gave the, the panel a, a different tone than it might have had beforehand, but it was so uh, kind of wonderfully open and interesting uh, for you to, to set that up. At that point, you had only been out of jail for three or four months, I think. That's right. And uh, and so let's, let's sort of take people back to the beginning of this story to give them the real bedrock of it, which was that you were uh, writing for Vice, as the, the subtitle of the book says, a music editor at Vice who tried to become the coolest reporter uh, the company ever had by becoming an international drug smuggler. Um, does that, uh, that's the, the, the quote from uh, one of the press releases for your book, Slava, does that overstate things? Yeah, I didn't write that. Uh, that. That was the publisher. Just want to be real, real clear. I did not write that. Um, I, no, I wouldn't say I was trying to be the coolest. I was just trying to be successful. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that's really what it came down to. The people around me at the time were doing things like uh, going and talking to ISIS members, or running around the Capitol building, shooting the, uh, the recording people who were shooting it up. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was Gonzo journalism in the twenty first age or whatever age that it came up in. Yeah, yeah. And it's very uh, intoxicating to be kind of in and around all that, right? It must have been very exciting. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Especially at like 24 years old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like uh, I, I immigrated to Canada when I was four years old from Kiev, and we lived in Victoria Park. But I went to high school in Barrie, Ontario. So my life was uh, at a much lower tempo than it was living in Parkdale, Toronto, where I'm meeting all of my favorite rappers and I'm going to all my favorite parties and I'm throwing parties. And no, it was intoxicating. That's that's a great word to use. And uh, when you add the vice culture to that, my ultimate goal was always, I want to move to New York. I want to work for Vice New York. That was always the goal. And I feel like that is the goal of a lot of the people who worked at Vice Canada. Uh, you were covering uh, hip-hop and music, and uh, you were in nightclubs a lot, and that sort of became a, a bigger part of, of this lifestyle for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the people that I had encountered through writing about music, uh, the party promoters, uh, the stuff like that, these are people who, you know, they're nightlife uh entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and that uh, overlaps pretty closely with criminal and i think that's the reason that i don't really shy away from that label because um to me after meeting uh, such a variety of criminals after being in jail for 28 months i was able to see that people uh who have been given that label by the court system are not necessarily bad people 
they are actually just entrepreneurs taking advantage of the last bootstrap available to them in the society we live in now. And uh, it's just a, it's a bootstrap that a lot of people, uh, mainly the state, thinks is not a right one. So, um, I so think that's selling to, drugs and things, right? Is that what you're saying? Um, um, yeah, managing a supply chain of goods <laughs> yeah, across yeah. multiple countries. <laughs> I guess it's all about how you spin it. Yeah, right, absolutely, Richard? absolutely. You say, I wouldn't believe this story was true if I hadn't lived it myself. Tell me what you can about what happened between the point at which you were writing music and then you ended up being arrested in Montreal. Yeah, well, that's a pretty, a pretty uh, big span of years. Mm-hmm. So I was writing about music, and uh, specifically what had happened is I kind of hit my ceiling on uh, writing about specific artists, and I'd written some unfavorable things about specific uh, big rappers in the city, so I was more or less blacklisted. So I figured, mm-hmm. okay, well, let me find something else to do and uh, something else to write about. And because of the fact that Kuwait's uh, kind of encor- encourages this culture of, you know, you go do a thing and then you go write about it. Right. I stumbled upon these uh, people who handle this international supply chain uh, from Australia, uh, sorry, from the United States into Australia. You're listening to Slava Pastic on The Richard Krause Show. He's the co-author of Bad Trips, a memoir available now wherever you buy fine books. I went on that trip uh, the first chance I got, and I uh, took that uh, mewling expedition myself and i went to australia and you know what mission successful it was it was a crazy trip i outlined it completely in bad trips i recommend everybody go uh buy that and check it out mm-hmm. and uh when i came back what happened was uh, i told other people about it and that's when everything kind of went uh went south because there was one person really that couldn't keep their mouth shut is that right I mean, I wouldn't say that. There's definitely one person who recorded the entire sequence of events. Mm-hmm. That didn't help things. But we were also like, um, well, me specifically, I'm not a very good criminal, right? That was my first time being a criminal. <laughs> so I, I, I found out the hard way what to do and what not to do. And you were arrested in Montreal in late 2018, where you had been living under a new name. What do you remember about that day? Um, I remember that I was specifically thinking after work. So I was working in a WeWork. And I remember uh, having a beer in the little uh, main area of the WeWork after and thinking, you know, am I going to go work out today or not? (laughs) You know, like, should I go to the gym or should I just stay home and watch something on Netflix? And I was listening to a podcast and I'm walking into the lobby when all of a sudden I feel a tap on my arm and uh, a woman calls me by my old name. And uh, at that point, I uh, knew the jig was up. She arrested me. They put me in what was essentially a drunk tank in Montreal overnight. And then they actually put me on a private jet the next day to extradite me back to Ontario. Yeah. Wow. So that was my only time on a private jet. And I would like to thank the RCMP (laughs) for the luxury of that venture. (laughs) So uh, let's talk then a little bit about what happens. Uh, You were convicted. You spent, uh, what was it, 28 months in jail? That's right. 28 months. Canada has a very interesting system where uh, you only really do two-thirds of your sentence, but if you're a really good boy, like I was, you get to be out in one-third of your sentence. Right. What was it like for you? Uh, you told me that day that we did this onstage interview about uh, you, you, learned, you learned things. You learned a great deal by being in, in prison. Oh, absolutely, because the thing that people have to understand is it's still Canadian prison. 
right? It's still Canadian prison. We still have, we're not treated barbarically. We have HBO. We have all the sports channels. We go grocery shopping. We have mini golf. There's barbecuing. But the fact is, when you do get all of those quote-unquote basic necessities of your life, and maybe a little bit of luxuries, you take a a different type of thing for granted, right? Uh, Mostly, like, there's a lot of guys in prison, Richard, right? I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of dudes there. (laughs) Who were these other dudes that you were with? Well, here's the interesting thing. The only reason that I was able to go to a minimum security uh, facility was because I had no violence on my record. Mm. So other people can go there who have no violence on their record. So other drug-based criminals. But you also get people who have trickled down and cascaded through the system starting from uh, either a maximum security facility or a minimum or a medium security facility. And once you're in a minimum security facility, the biggest thing they have over you is the fact that they can send you to a medium facility. So you don't actually see a lot of the stuff that you do in movies where guys are making uh, moonshine Mm -hmm. or people are walking around with sharpened pieces of uh, aluminum foil because it's not really worth it because nobody wants to go back to medium. Everybody wants to stay in minimum and play mini golf. You only did the Las Vegas to Australia drug run once. Would you have wanted to do more? Hell yeah, Richard. Come on, it's a free vacation. What are you talking about? Of course. Plus, listen, like, the time I did it, I was successful. Who knows what would happen the next time? Yeah. Uh, I know from personal experience that um, the plan is pretty foolproof. You just have to do a series of very unfortunate uh, things in order for it to go wrong, which is unfortunately what happened in the case of... Uh, this uh, story that we're talking about right yeah. now, but I would have absolutely probably gone to Australia once a year. Um, yeah, probably ten times by now, right? This happened almost. Uh, this happened like nine years ago, so I would have gone to Australia nine times by now. Wow! And uh, I mean, how do you see yourself today? Then do you do you look back, having read written the book, and you know you've you've talked about the story? Does it seem like another person, or or how do you think of it today? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The person in my 20s that I was, if you read the book, it's kind of structured around the idea that like every uh, chapter after a certain point introduces a new drug into my life, Mm. and that drug kind of takes over. And just the fact that right now I'm living a fairly sober life outside of occasional trips to the the dispensary store, um, it's just a huge difference. Everything is at a, a much slower pace. You're able to kind of reflect on things. And uh, in some ways, going to jail was kind of like going to therapy because you you have no phone to sink into. You have to talk the whole time. So, and I suppose it's an introspective time as well. You, do you find yourself isolated quite often? I mean, are you? I mean, you're not in lockdown, but I wish that I was isolated more. To be honest, Richard, because some of the people that I was around, uh, the, the only thing I could hope for when I was around them was isolation. But uh, no, like once you got your own room, things are actually pretty even keeled and you're able to kind of sit there and read and sharpen your mind and do your push-ups for sure. But um, no, isolation was kind of some, like a luxury in jail because when you are around people, the, the, the caliber of the people, I'm just going to stress again, is not the greatest. Right, right. And how do you respond when people say, well, if you're in prison, it's just essentially a, a, you know, a, a, a school for, for criminality. Did you find that to be true? I mean, yeah, but the problem is that the federal government stopped investing in programs that kept prisoners' time busy, so they have nothing to do but talk to each Mm, other. When I was there during COVID, a majority of the jobs were literally wiping doorknobs. Like, what is anybody supposed to take out of their time with that skill? Nothing. So all they're able to do is network and talk to people. And yeah, if they are uh, entrepreneurially minded, they're going to make the connections that you probably don't want them to make. 
So I think the solution is actually more government fund. But unfortunately, that's the solution to a lot of stuff. You're listening to Slava Postik on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Bad Trips, How I Went from Vice Reporter to International Drug Smuggler, is on sale now wherever you buy fine books. What did this experience teach you? And I, I'll, I'll ask that sort of as, as a two-parter, the, the, the criminal part of this and then being in jail. Because I remember you telling me this summer that you, you came out of jail a much different kind of person. Yeah, I would say the two things that it actually does teach you is humility and patience. You know, mm. I am talking a good game right now because I'm promoting a book, which again is Bad Trips. Go and buy that right now. Yep. But a big part of it is kind of understanding and humbling yourself and seeing like, hey, acting like a knucklehead is only going to get me in this situation along with all these other guys. And when you're in prison, all you want to do is get out. So you will look for any thing and make any uh, pledge or promise with yourself that it takes uh, in order to do that. So humility and patience. Patience comes from, again, dealing with those difficult people and not kind of just rolling your eyes and walking away. Um, that's a, th- Those are the two kind of virtues that are talking, humility and patience. And how did you find the tone uh, for the book? Because you don't want to glamorize the crime but you also want to tell it for what it is. You want to use some humor. Like, Tell me a little bit about the writing of the book. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to glamorize it, but at the same time, my introduction to cocaine has always been glamorous. It's always been a glamorous drug. It's not like uh, fentanyl or Percocets or something that is being used for pain medication. In my mind, cocaine, up until me going to prison, I'd never met anybody whose life had been ruined by cocaine. It was always like very good-looking people taking it at a party and like these very cool vials at the device events. So, uh, you know, my relationship to, uh, sorry, I forgot the question, Richard. Well, just uh, talking about um, uh, the, the glamorization of the crime in the book, you don't really want to do that, but you do want to be honest and, and truthful with the story. Right. I told it from the perspective of uh, myself in my 20s, who was kind of dumb and did glamorize it. And I feel that in the last chapter, I do do a good job of talking about where I am now and what my thinking is now. And listen, it's very unfortunate that anybody has to go to jail for this. That's one thing I do want to stress. No, I know what it's like for, uh, for that to happen to your family and for that to happen to yourself. But I also think a big part of it is about accepting personal responsibility for our actions. And, uh, yeah, 24 is not a, a baby, but it's also um, a person who's still kind of developing the world, and maybe we should give those people grace. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe, and we've just got a minute left, but was it a, a situation where you became a product of kind of a drug-obsessed work environment and, and the rules, the old rules, didn't seem to apply to you? I mean, yeah, I feel, I feel like that's putting too neat of a bow on things, and I feel like it's important to think of Vice Canada as a separate entity than mm. Vice America in some ways, but I do feel like that was part of the culture, absolutely. They, de- they definitely didn't try to stop us. Uh, Slava, thanks so much for this. Yeah, what a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, Slava Pastek, the book is called Bad Trips, How I Went from Vice Reporter to International Drug Smuggler. It's available now wherever you buy fine books. It is a great read. I'm rifling through it right now. I don't know if you can hear that. It is a great read. Check it out. With just a minute or so left in this segment, I wanted to play just a little bit of audio from Eric McCormack. You know him as Will on Will and Grace, and soon you'll be able to see him in the horror anthology series Slasher Rip. That'll be on Hollywood Suite. In this clip, he talks about an important lesson that he learned from doing his very first play. I was reading uh, about your very early days, and your first play from the first grade uh, was The Man (laughs) with, With the Hat. 
And what did you learn from that? Because I had heard a number of things uh, that you've sort of taken forward uh, from that particular performance in the first grade. I'd love if someone had come to me when I'm six or seven saying, in 52 years, you'll be asked about this production. I would have said, 52 years? Never lived that long. Um, yeah, that was the first, that was first grade. And uh, and it was just a play about a guy who sells hats and he wears them all at the same time on top of his head. And everyone else in the play plays monkeys in the tree and they steal my hats. Spoiler <laughs> alert, that's the whole, that's the whole play. Uh, and, but I remember thinking, huh, I'm the title character. I am the man with the hats. And everyone else is supporting me. So I, even at six years old, I'm, uh, I'm star tripping a little bit. And then the, the next year, there was a play about a kingdom or something. And I thought, sure, I'm going to play the king. But I didn't. And it ended up Bruce Walker played the king. And I was the chef. And that's when I discovered uh, upstaging. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did a terrible uh, second grade French accent and um, and whatever I'd seen Billy Van do on the hilarious House right, of Frankenstein, right. you know. That was a funny little clip from Eric McCormack. Now, you'll soon be able to see him in a new horror anthology series called Slasher, colon, Ripper. That'll be on Hollywood Suite. And it sounds fun. I haven't seen it yet. But he says, Basil Garvey is the most evil character I've ever played. And I loved him. I can't wait for Canada to see Slasher, Ripper. It's coming soon to Hollywood Suite. I'm excited to share this interview with you. She's been thrown off a bus. She's flipped off walls. She's fought and she's flown. Uh, she is a stunt woman who you have seen in all sorts of things, including uh, Deadpool 2, Supergirl, Supernatural. Uh, she was uh, in Slumberland starring Jason Momoa and most recently, I guess, uh, in uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, one of the biggest hits of the year. Uh, her name is Maya Katumpug and she joins me today. Maya, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And thank you for spending some time with me tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. So your mother was a trailblazer. Your mother, Deborah, was also a stunt woman. Uh, tell me a little bit about the influence that she had on you. Oh, she had such a huge mm -hmm. impact growing up. I would come with her on set and when I was younger, just sometimes just her having to be a mom um, <laughs> and navigate regular schedules. But she was a pioneer as one of the first um, black Canadian stunt women. Mm -hmm. And she really did the big gag. She was set on fire. She, you know, <laughs> bungee jumped off a bridge. She's the real deal. And tell me what it was like for you, because you were quite young when you started seeing her do all these things. Were you ever concerned? Did you understand immediately, like, what was happening, that this was a job and it wasn't uh, mm -hmm. going to be terrible for her at the end of the day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was something she explained to me. Um, but when she would come home with, like, hair and makeup, sometimes um, fake blood on her, mm. I, you know, I was a kid, so I'd be like, what's going on, Mom? She was like, oh, just makeup. So I did learn about hair and makeup and how talented they are and their artistic qualities very early. Yes, I yeah. Can. That's probably good. So it, it saved you from having a lot of nightmares, I would imagine, uh, as a Absolutely. young person. Um, mm -hmm. Then your first role was as a stunt kid in the show Smallville. How old were you? Yeah, I was about six years old. Wow. Wow. And yeah. what sort of stunts do uh, six-year-olds do? 
Yeah, it was a stunt acting thing where I had to be saved by Superman. So I had to cry in a home that was um, being what was on fire, essentially. So Mm -hmm. fire was within a certain proximity to me. So that was the stunt involved, but nothing major. (laughs) And was that the thing? I mean, you saw your mother doing this, uh, and then you're you're on this show, Superman is saving you. Uh, Was that the Mm -hmm. thing that made you go, yeah, this this is for me? Because... You, even though it's very safe to do a lot of these things, you can get hurt. And didn't your mother tell me, tell you that you'll know the first time you do a big stunt, if you get hurt and then you go, I want to do this again. That's when you know that you're a stunt person. Yeah. She means more bumps and bruises, not actual injuries. She means just, you know, being part of like just tough and being able to hit the ground and fall and do a lot of the things that come with being a stunt performer. Mm -hmm. You'll, you'll really figure out if you, if you like it or not, but that moment that I really knew I wanted to be in stunts wasn't when I was that young. It was after I'd gone to college, gone away, um, had been pre-law, just about to go to law school, and I said I want to try before I go to school um, to pursue stunts full-time, mm-hmm. to train and master all the different kinds of crafts and figure it out. And in that process of training and you know, grinding it out for jobs, I really found a love for it. Mm-hmm. So I stuck with it. And tell me about representation uh, in working as a stunt performer. Um, it, it must have changed. Your mother was a, a pioneer as a black Canadian mm-hmm. stunt person. Uh, tell me a little bit about what the landscape is today. Oh, it's so much more diverse. Mm-hmm. There are so many more... Um, performers of color in general all around Canada that have been able to create full-time careers, which was unheard of um, when my mom Mm -hmm. was in the industry. And there are way more um, avenues for people of all different kinds of nations to get into the industry. So I think we've come a long way, and we are also just at the tip of the iceberg of making things even more accessible for performers of color. So I think it'll only get better with time. You're listening to stunt person Maya Makatumpug on The Richard Krause Show. See her in Black Panther, Deadpool 2, and many other movies and television shows. And Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, one of the biggest hits of the year. It is a movie that also, beyond its box office, has such a a meaning to it. It is, in some ways, a eulogy for Chadwick Boseman, who was the late actor who played the the Black Panther in the first film. Um, Tell me how you got that job, how you landed uh, on the set of one of the biggest movies of the year. I had worked with the you know, fight choreographer and coordinator of Black Panther on another production in Canada called Altered Carbon years prior, and um, we got a chance to do a pre-visual concept video uh, to pitch action to directors, and he, he really was impressed with me mm. um, working with him on that project. So when he got called for Black Panther, he called me right away and was like, I want you to be a Dora Milaje. I want you to be part of this man team. Let's do it. And I said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and the Dora Milaje are the warriors of, the, of Wakanda. And so yeah. were there special training and things that you had to do? Because the action sequences are just absolutely wild in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, no, we had to do months of training um, prior to uh, in all different kinds of spear, um, stances, different kinds of martial arts, even Filipino martial arts. Mm -hmm. We trained every day. We ran a mile every morning. We were 
I was in the best shape of my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, right? Right. <laughs> and you mentioned Filipino uh, uh, martial arts. Um, you're half Filipino, and you went back to the Philippines three years ago, and you really connected with it. Yes, um, it is a major part of my roots. My last name is Makatumbag. Um, it's from the Igorot tribe in Baguio in the Philippines, and it's a huge part of me. So it was really cool to tap into and learn and train in Filipino martial arts in the process. Um, it was it was almost spiritual. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's what's happening now? Are you being lit now, on fire? <laughs> no, I'm not being lit on fire. I've been running away from a big scary monster the past few months, and um, that's all I can say about it. But it's a new Apple TV show that I've been doing, oh, and that cool. is got us shooting all over the lower mainland of bc which is really really beautiful yeah yeah and you know as an ongoing career uh are you constantly in training are you constantly learning new things for black panther you you said the training was very intense but is it always an ongoing process of picking up a new skill here a new style of fighting here or whatever it might be Absolutely. And, you know, that's what makes it really interesting. That's why I find people can be in this industry and be a stunt performer and really never get bored and want to change careers because you're constantly adding to your skill set, whether that's driving, you know, motorcycles, martial arts, wire work, gymnastics. Tell me what your mother's reaction was when you went to the Wakanda Forever premiere. Uh, She was just very, very proud yeah. and in awe and appreciative of the fact that I could share and celebrate such a huge moment in my life and got to see the people that I got to work with and the people that were in the room with me and how much they have impacted and influenced society in such a positive way. She was just elated and super proud. Well, Maya, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Maya Pug on The Richard Krause Show. You can see her in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Deadpool 2, and whatever that Apple TV show that she teased us with at the very end of the interview is. I'm sure we'll be seeing lots of her in future. So a big thanks to Maya for spending some time with us today. A big thanks to Slava Pastic. Find his book, Bad Trips, wherever you buy fine books. Also want to thank Lainey Wilson. Check out her new album, Bell Bottom country wherever you buy fine music oh and big thanks to eric mccormack as well for his contribution to the show today of course my biggest thanks as always goes to you for listening i'm richard Krauss. stay happy stay healthy stay safe stay weird and we'll talk to you again soon